Welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. In this episode, recorded on the final day of Viva's R&D and Quality Summit in an intermittently sunny Madrid, I sat down with Viva's President of Europe, Chris Small, to discuss the state of clinical trials in the UK and Europe, and quite a few things in between and beyond. Moore and I sunk our teeth into matters wholly immersed in the importance of action, access, predictability, and the overarching theme of digital capitalized, and how Viva is there to support industry from end to end. It was an insightful event and a fascinating conversation. Do let us know if you agree, and thank you for listening. This is Pharma Forum web editor Nicole Raleigh, and I have today with me President of Europe at Viva, Chris Moore. Welcome, Chris. Morning, Nicole. So today you and I were going to be speaking about the state of clinical trials in the UK and Europe. But to sort of get us started, I just wanted to sort of gather your perspective on how the event has been overall for you on this not sunny morning in Madrid, but a rather spritzy day. Can you tell me? Well, we did have a day of sunshine yesterday, just just for the record. We did, yes. But I do feel a bit cheated today. I'll also give you that. Okay, so, yeah. So no. This is, this is a really important point of the year for us. This is our one chance to bring the whole industry together and see whether we're on the right track or not. And I think as we, as we come out of the first day, we're just really excited. I think we're excited about the level of energy in the industry. I think we're getting to a really exciting time in the life science industry with more drugs in development than ever been uh, ever have been in before. The number of conditions being treated um, growing rapidly, but also some of the conditions that people haven't been able to, to treat before, mm -hmm. we're finally able to get to. And we in Beaver see our part as playing, doing what we can to help raise the capabilities of the industry. Mm -hmm. And these, these events, this is our test bed to see, are we on the right track? Are we actually making a difference? And I'd love to know your thoughts, but I think in our little way, hopefully we are, um, well, which is why we're yeah. seeking to get that feedback. It certainly seems so. And the feedback that I've been hearing, not paid for, as Pilar said, <laughs> um, has been extremely positive. Yeah. And you used this word a second ago, exciting. This is a word that was heard at Reuters the other month. So excitement is definitely in the air for pharma, despite the sort of financial situation at the moment. But yeah, certainly at Viva Summit, it's continued, this excitement. So let's stay broad. Yeah. Um, so clinical trials, broadly speaking, what would be your automatic response to a question on the state of clinical trials in 2023 before we sort of tunnel down into the specifics of geographies? So... I think as we as we look across the, the global landscape, it's it's absolutely a global business. There's a few themes and trends that we're seeing here that that are impacting decisions that people are making in terms of which geography they go for. So on a on a sort of high level um, macro view, what we're seeing is more focus on specialty areas, specialty diseases. What that's driving is a need to be able to find the patients and the right mm -hmm. patients yeah. for those treatments, because it's not like a mass population treatment. You're trying to find certain individuals who fit those criteria and you can demonstrate the effect of your drugs. So mm -hmm. 
finding patients in an efficient and effective way is super, super important. I think the other thing that companies are looking at is predictability. Mm -hmm. So where can I go in the world where I know what the regulatory conditions are going to be, that I can find high quality patients? And one word that we're seeing coming in more and more is diversity. Mm -hmm. So wanting to make sure that you've got the right um, the right diversity amongst your patient population to know that your treatment's truly representative. And all of that then funnels down into, well, actually, where do you go in order to do that? And I guess that's a, a, a topic that we're going to drill into we across are, the yeah. course of today. We are. And I was thinking as you were speaking that all these challenges you're mentioning is where Viva comes in. It's, it's quite something to listen to at the Viva Summit is to see just how uh, wider remit you offer the industry. So now we're going to do the tunnelling down. Firstly, into UK clinical trials. So according to figures from the ABPI, as I'm sure you're aware, there was a 41% decline in new trial initiations between 2017 and 2021. So not a positive percentage at all. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So we've, we've had a few things coming together. Um, so we talked about that magic word, predictability. Mm -hmm. um, I hate to even mention the word, but you, you can't get away from it. With Brexit, prior to Brexit, we had the European Medical Agency uh, within the UK, which, again, meant that it was, it was a great place to come and register your drugs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of regulatory affairs routes were heavily represented here in, in the UK. Um, and as a result of that, that, that had a, a knock-on effect. Also being part of the European Union, the trading block and the single registration for a drug, it was a good place to be. I think with the uncertainty caused by Brexit and really not knowing what that was going to do to rules and regulations, which previously had been set and understood, yeah. I think that had a knock-on effect. I think the impact of um, the the, the the NHS being quite overstretched in, in the UK also had an impact. And then I think some of the, uh, the focus on clinical trials and the supporting capabilities, i.e. scanning capabilities and availability of those two trials as a, um, a capability, um, the, the, the lack of those things all have contributed towards saying, well, maybe the UK wasn't the right, the right place over those past few years to focus on. Yes. I mean, you brought up Brexit. I didn't. Yep. No, no. But sorry for totally the B -word. valid contribution to these figures yeah. we're going to be discussing. I was just wondering while you were speaking as well, you didn't mention COVID towards the tail end of this percentage. Obviously, COVID hit in 2020. Yeah. So we've got a full year of impact in that percentage. Do you think it did play a part at that juncture or it, not? It's actually a really great question because it also showed where the UK was at its strongest. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think to look at COVID, you have to look at both sides of it. So COVID hit everyone. So yeah. there was, um, obviously there was a dip in, in clinical trials worldwide outside of COVID, while a lot of these things were put on pause, mm -hmm. but there was no getting away from the fact that the UK was in decline uh, because of some of those other macro yeah. factors. I think what COVID showed was that when the UK uses its structural benefits in its favour in a coordinated mm. way, actually it's a great place to carry out a clinical study. And it's a, it's a great place to do that at scale. 
I think the challenge for the UK, the European Union and any other geography going forward is it's a, everyone wants research because it helps contribute to, to both national economies and also to, to, to national health. And so it's a competitive market for countries to attract that in. And I think, as I'm sure we'll get into, most geographies are starting to think about how they can use their structural benefits to their favour to be more favourable. Definitely. So you've sort of gone into the commerciality of it there at the end. So let's move on with some of the questions we've sort of pre-prepared for this at this juncture. So the UK Life Sciences Council. Yeah. Some big news recently. Um, so for those who don't know, the UK Life Sciences Council is a twice yearly meeting between ministers and global life sciences industry leaders. And they met on the 25th of May to discuss the sector's economic potential and how to tackle the recent decline in investment. And there was the news that the government will be investing £650 million, not dollars, in funding life sciences research. And that includes £121 million for the improvement of commercial clinical trials. So can you give me your thoughts on that and sort of expand maybe and add some yeah, viva uh, perspectives to that? No, absolutely. And I think it sort of leaks on also to um, the Lord O'Shaughnessy report as well, which it's is very tightly yeah. around um, <laughs> But it is almost, it's almost impossible to separate those two because I think actually it shows a very positive movement. Um, uh, if, you, if you look at what's happened, we've always recognised that we've had a traditionally very strong and vibrant life science industry. Mm-hmm. We've got two of the majors in terms of GSK and AZ. We've got a vibrant biotech community. Um, but I think... There was, there was almost a taking, taking for granted of the sector. Um, I think what we're seeing recently is a, a redoubling down on industrial policy mm-hmm. and a recognition of the importance of, of life sciences in terms of um, impact society, high, high value jobs, um, and great exporting business. And, and I think. I'm seeing in policy um, and more of a consensus actually across the, the political parties about we can't take it for granted anymore. So I think as we as we look at the the, the report from the council and and actually um, I, I guess we'll come on to it in a moment the Lord O'Shaughnessy report, what we're seeing is um, policymakers taking a step back and saying we have taken our eye off the ball. Mm-hmm. We need to get our focus back onto it and we need to reverse the decline and get back onto the front foot. So I, I take it as a very positive first step, um, but a lot more needs to be done. Yes, a lot more. That's, I don't want to say it's an understatement, but certainly uh, life sciences industry, very good at talking about what needs to be done, but we yeah. need tangible action. So in this independent review by Lord James O'Shaughnessy, he advised making the UK an attractive destination for industry clinical trials, um, which requires regulatory reform, speedier study setup and approvals and improved the buzzword this year, access to data. So let's address that first and then we'll come on to another question on that. So first of all, I think there was a lot of 
there was a lot of positive things that we can all take out of the Lord O'Shaughnessy report. I think, first of all, um, the, 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 the recognition that we made it way too hard in this country mm-hmm. to contract clinical studies, the fact that each care commissioning group needed its own contracts was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of our greatest assets, having a unified healthcare system. And then to say, but you'll have your contracts and I'll have mine, it just gets in the way. Mm-hmm. It adds no value to anyone. I think recognising that if you want to raise the overall standard of treatment, having a healthy um, health set of clinical trials being run within the UK is really important. And saying, so that has to actually come back into the national thinking in terms of priorities for clinicians and, and rewarding them for it. Uh, I thought it was a massively positive step. And I think just getting the focus back on to why was the UK such a great destination, especially for phase two studies, mm-hmm. the, where you're looking to design how you're bringing your treatments to market um, and going back to some of those things that we're really good at and embedding them back in into our health service and making those more accessible to pharmaceutical companies was phenomenally positive. And I thought the second most positive thing about that was that the government has has now accepted all of those recommendations and is saying they're going to act on them. I think it's now vital they follow through mm-hmm. because we've got such a distance to catch up that you know now we need to see the action to follow the words. But the intent, the statements, and the direction I thought were phenomenal. Thank you for that. Yes. So the report also recommends setting up clinical trial acceleration networks or CTANs. And those are to be funded and equipped to deliver, and I quote, genuinely best-in-world clinical trial services. So now we're going to come to the specifics of this interview. Uh, to what extent can Viva help? So I think when you actually look at it, there's too much friction in mm-hmm. the process. So if you look at how a, a clinical trial is, is typically carried out today, the bits don't talk to each other very well. Mm-hmm. So you've got the pharmaceutical company who, who sponsors the trial. Quite often, they'll work with clinical research organisation mm-hmm. who will then work with sites who have doctors who work with patients. Yeah. And the data and the information is fragmented between all those parties. What we see in Viva is we've, we've been working for a number of years in creating a platform now that the majority of the industry uses to, to run their clinical studies on. And we're extending out the breadth and depth of what we're able to offer to the pharmaceutical companies to better connect them internally. With that, we're also making it easier for them to work directly with the CROs so Mm -hmm. that instead of CRO having their data, the pharmaceutical company having their data, and then trying to translate between the two, they they just share the data. Mm -hmm. The next challenge was, well, how do you get that data back from the sites themselves where, where these trials are carried out? And so we're, we're investing in providing um, life sciences quality systems to the sites, which is something they've never had before. And for the, for, for, for the majority of those sites, we will provide that for free forever. And in doing so, they've got software designed for them that can provide the information back to the CROs and the pharma companies, taking away that friction. But the area we're really excited about is providing tools to the patients. Yeah. So we talked about specialty trials earlier, mm-hmm. target populations, people with, um, 
with, with chronic diseases or, or acute diseases where they might struggle to, to come into trial centres um, and the trial centres may not always be conveniently located for them. Yeah. What we're looking to do is to provide tools directly to those patients and in doing so, half the amount of time that they, they need to spend in the sites to, to come in, so half the number of visits, for example, yeah. which means that you open up to a broader population, you create a much better experience for the patient, and there are no breaks in the provision of the data because that can then flow back in a consistent way. And in doing so, we think we can achieve two things. Number one, we think we can deliver 25% cheaper clinical studies for the whole industry. Mm -hmm. Number two, that we can do them 25% faster. And then the other piece that is harder to quantify, we also think we're going to make it easier to be able to um, enroll and keep patients engaged with the studies so that that data comes out at the end. Yes. So what you've been talking about just at the last part of what you were saying, we're now talking about the Viva digital trials platform. Yes, correct. Aren't we? Because this has been successfully used by, for one example, Leo Pharma. Is that correct? So Leo were, were an early, um, early partner with it. Um, actually, the, the main partner we're working with right now is UCB. You would have seen that on yes, stage okay. yesterday with um, Edward Erkins, the, uh, the chief digital officer, talking mm -hmm. about it. And what we're looking to do here, we, we're at the early part of, of creating what we hope will be a transformation for the industry, is working with, and UCB is a phenomenally patient-centric company. Um, they, they always talk about, not about the patient, without the patient, which I just think is uh, it, it's heartfelt within UCB, and they, they really follow through on that. So as, a, as an organization to partner with, and and come up with this future way of working. I think they're very in tune with the need of patients. They're very technologically aware as an organisation, mm -hmm. and we've partnered with them for many years, so we're really excited about that. Yes, we spoke with Rick and Edwin yesterday, oh, and they were saying yes. it was sort of a long development, developmental partnership, yeah. and without that history, what they're trying to achieve at the moment couldn't be possible because it is a partnership is a development of relations. So it makes sense that yeah. it's beautifully put. It, it is genuinely um, to do this well. It's not easy. Um, and it's genuinely a marriage of um, each side challenging each other to be better. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually, we're very excited about that work with UCB. because I couldn't think of a better partner to do that with. Fantastic. OK, so. Let's get back down to more data from outside of the data of the software perspective. So data from the first six months of the National Contract Value Review uh, showed that the UK's recently implemented national approach to costing and contracting for commercial contract research has suggested that setup times have reduced by 45%, which is positive. So that's from 213 days to 118 days? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there, are there any comments on that you... No, I, I think I think it's a it's the early signs of this new focus mm -hmm. and um, the early signs of really valuing the industry and just starting to ask the basic questions again. Why was it taking so long? During COVID, we showed 
how quickly you could set up and run trials at scale. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when you look at some of those those COVID studies, they were they were some of the biggest, fastest executed in the world. And mm-hmm. they, they were a they were great investment for UK life sciences industry. Definitely. And I think the good news now is with this more sensible uh, and thoughtful policy about life science industry, people are just going back and asking those basic questions. Why are we letting this take so long? Yeah. And with it, guess what? There's probably not that many good reasons to, to keep it so long. So I think it's all about momentum now. Mm-hmm. If we can follow through on the Lord Assurance Report, if that can really be enacted, if we can keep this excitement and enthusiasm around the industry, then I, I, I'd be very hopeful that we're going to see further improvements. And I think the, the single contracting across um, the NHS will be the biggest thing that could be done very quickly. Um, but also, I think the, the UK has certain structural advantages in terms of a unified healthcare system and traditionally a very positive attitude towards digital, mm-hmm. which I think if the UK is going to be a player in this market, then it's, it's absolutely vital that, um, that we, we not only follow through on the basics, but actually start to try and take a step ahead by being more open to more digital access, um, digital approvals, digital usage. And then again, I think the UK can get back more to a leadership position. So, yes, digital is the focus. I mean, we were speaking yesterday with uh, Richard Young, who you'll know well, and um, he was saying it's a preferable description for clinical trials to decentralised clinical trials. He even went so far as to say he almost abhorred the word decentralised. So this digitalization, this hybridization, as we mentioned earlier, um, seems to be key. And that hybrid uh, descriptor could apply to this UCB Viva partnership as well, where you're Very bringing nice. two sides together. Okay, so we've we've discussed the UK now. Yeah. And we also said we'd discuss Europe. So let's shift to Europe. And uh, the European Commission's proposal to create a single market across the EU for medicines. Yeah came out recently. So that does away with the current fragmentation in the marketplace that, according to some, leads to unequal access to medicines between member states, makes health systems inefficient and violates the rights of EU citizens. So do you have any comments on that? So again, first of all, I think the the move towards EU CTR, the harmonisation of clinical studies across the block, was a massively positive move. And actually, it starts to give Europe the kind of access to access to populations to to rival North America, which is still the powerhouse for Mm -hmm. for clinical studies. I think we're in the early stages of that, though, um, and you can already see some of the teething problems with it. So it's absolutely the right thing to do. But I think the devil is in the detail in this one. So when you look at the enactment of it, the early stages are indicating there's still a little bit of discrepancy between interpretation of the rules between the regions. Yeah. So, for example, uh, you know, Germany has some very strong privacy rules where the current regulations don't necessarily align. And so for pharmaceutical companies, they're still having to navigate those national differences. Mm-hmm. 
I think for for this um, this move towards a, a common approach for approvals and regulation of trials across the block, those those national differences really need to be ironed out mm-hmm. because we go back to predictability. Yeah. And the difficulty is without without a common harmonized approach is not predictable. It's sort of the same, but not quite the same. And the company is still left trying to deal with those national differences, try and get national contracts in place and, and meet the, the harmonized rules as well as the local rules. The other part that still needs to be worked on is that the, the upload of the approvals to that is still largely manual through the, through the portal. This screams of an area where it should just be automated. Yep. There should be an open, open access to it. Um, organizations like ourselves could provide capabilities to directly upload. It would smooth out the process. So in summary, great intent, mm-hmm. um, really sensible, good thing to do for the industry. Now it's got to, those wrinkles need to be ironed out to really make it truly effective. Yeah, especially for treatments for rare diseases and cell and gene therapies. Massively. Yeah, because Massively. of that biological element in the treatment. Where, where you've got, we, we have organisations we deal with now where they're dealing with a handful of patients across Europe with rare diseases. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to access those populations and, and get a large enough sample size to true, prove the, the value of the treatment, you need freedom to go where the patients are. It's a very different mindset to, to more sort of conventional mass treatments. And so if, if Europe is going to be competitive in these very emergent areas, we've got to get those regulations down. Definitely. Okay, so regulations segues in my mind at least to the other buzzword of this year, which is AI. Yeah. So we have to talk about AI. Yeah, we have to. So first question, have you used ChatGPT? So I have, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it's all of these technologies are incredible. And um, back in a previous life, I used to work with IBM and okay. ran analytics for globally for, for life sciences. So we were doing the early work around Watson and working with the research groups on some incredible things. I think there is no question that AI is coming of age. I think... Certainly in, in our world, in Viva, um, we see that we have an opportunity to help provide the industry with better data to feed the AI. I think we're going to see more and more uses of it. Um, but in a regulated industry like our own, you've got to have enough confidence in the data that you're making the right decisions. So unlike, for example, if we're... Um, if we're creating a letter or creating an essay or something like that, AI can be very convincing even when it's wrong. Yes. And we don't have that luxury in life sciences. No. So it is a great input. We're already seeing applications in the area of uh, automated categorization of documents. Um, we ourselves have announced our own CRM chatbot where we're going to help reps to have a better, more engaged conversation with doctors. And also, we're looking at how can you use that to better understand safety signals. So there's some really good, tangible uh, use cases. But I think in life sciences in particular, we just have to be mindful that we have to be confident in the data and therefore confident 
that if the AI gives us a, a good answer, that it's the right answer and not just convincing. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's what I think we're going to have to work through in the life science industry. Yeah, this is something also that Richard Young mentioned yesterday, that quality of data. Um, yes. So apparently Richard knows everything one wants to know about data management, obviously, given his role. But yeah. in your opinion, what needs to be done in the changing landscape in order to get that quality of data, in order to have that supreme data management? I think Viva's pretty well, as you were just alluding to now, set up to direct that away yeah. from any falsity from chat. GPT. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's not knocking chat GPT. Chat GPT makes its decision based on the data that's given to it. Yeah. And I think what we'll see is um, we'll see AI applied to, to the general uh, information set that's out there. And that will have its, its own use and purpose to trawl mass information and make sense of it. Um, but there's also going to be within the firewall. Mm -hmm. And that so within a within a company, you're going to want to have confidence in your data. So, if you know your data is good, then if you apply the right algorithms to it, you can get really good answers out of it. So, I think there's going to be mass data um, which you'll get from the general corpus of information out there, and then you'll get within the firewall data where you'll you'll actually really want to drill down and make decisions. Now, the challenge that then comes is you've got to get that data into a harmonized form that you can make sense of it. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, and this is, this is a problem way back when that, um, that, that we actually had with it, which is, for example, if you're comparing health information, uh, if you're taking a blood pressure, the, the conditions around how that blood pressure was taken can be as important as the blood pressure itself. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you just come back, Nicole, from your 10-mile run, your daily 10-mile run, mm -hmm. um, your blood pressure is going to be slightly different to, to when you're sitting down at the end of the evening and um, relaxing. So being able to get those subtleties yep. into, into AI is going to influence how far you can take it. But certainly, even in those areas we talked about, I think that's becoming a reality mm. of Mass auto automated categorization, looking for safety signals, providing suggestions on what to do next. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are those are going to those are very much a reality. Definitely bringing in, as you say, that real world evidence and yeah, yeah the environment of the patient. Yeah. Okay, so finally, is there a summative statement for everything we've been discussing? So the future of clinical trials in the UK. Yeah. And in Europe, we won't touch upon the US. Are the trajectories, will they be different due perhaps to borders, to regulatory? And what needs to be ameliorated for clinical trial future there? It's a great question. And I think if I were to sum up, summarise um, sort of certainly where I personally believe we are, I, I think it's a really hopeful time. Mm -hmm. I think there is a recognition of the importance of healthcare to society, to economies, etc., um, and a recognition that that actually deserves attention um, for, for all those reasons. I think the the movement we see in the UK is highly positive. 
um, where we see independent reports being wholeheartedly endorsed by government and a sense that um, there is a sensible political debate on all political parties, that this will give confidence in the future that we're not going to swing one way or another, is highly positive. I think the European model of moving towards a harmonised approach for the bloc is just common sense. Um, Now it's got to be followed through. And in both cases, we stand... We stand on the precipice of doing many of the right things. And now it's important that we do the difficult things of following through, mm-hmm. harmonising the European approach, opening it up to, to, to automated feeds. And in the UK, following through on Lord O'Shaughnessy's recommendations in full, but also double down on our structural advantages of a, a unified healthcare system mm-hmm. with a patient population of 65 million open up access to that and create, um, really be a leader around the use of digital to accelerate access to patients, access to um, new clinical studies and approval and speed of of delivery of those to to get what we used to be great at, which was predictability, back into our system. Thank you. So the key word, predictability. Predictability and execution. Ah, yes. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you for your time, Chris. It's been great speaking with you. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you. And so that concludes this episode of the Varma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about previous instalments and the main Farm Forum podcast series at farmerforum.com forward slash podcasts. The Mini Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. Of course, don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins as well. And follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for listening. Thank you.